in a world. Three friends who loved movies decided to start a podcast. Not just any movie podcast, but the movie podcast. The real take. A podcast where topics like, is Ferris Bueller a bit of a sociopath? Could we really survive a zombie apocalypse? And how on earth could Forrest Gump ever get into the army are discussed. A podcast where the hosts metaphorically shoot people if they don't watch classics. And where they brutally murder scenes from iconic movies with bad acting. The Real Take, Season 3. A podcast by film fans for film fans is ready to be released to the world. Don't miss Take 31, where our hosts discuss compelling debuts from actors, writers and directors. Coming to a podcast provider near you very soon. Hang on a second, that's that's what I usually say. Let's roll titles. (laughs) (laughs) Sit down and grab a glass. Sinead Ross and Niall have made a podcast. It's the real take, breaking it down. Having fun and talking movies. Ah, yes, I am stealing your thunder, Niall, just slightly. But I kind of wanted to surprise you a little bit, right? First of all, it is The Real Take, a podcast by film fans, for for film fans. And it's a shiny new, oh so beautiful new season. Season three and Niall and Ross are here as well. How are you doing, guys? We're on the trilogy. Very well. Yes, this I can't believe. This is our 31st episode. It is. Amazing Amazing stuff. Amazing. So who could who could think back to our debut? back in episode oh. one. Oh, yes oh, well bleary eyed and yeah <laughs> uncynical <laughs> yeah full of hope and wonder as to you know how uh, great and amazing we were going to be but uh, no i did kind of steal your your thunder a little bit nile there because you are you are the definitive in a world guy right um and this has okay. got to give it a, a little bit of a clue as to what maybe i'm going to be talking about later on but uh, this episode for me uh, is going to feature the inner world man, Don Lafontaine, uh, which we will be chatting That's his about. Name, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's so passed away soon, hasn't he? He has. Two thousand and eight, he yeah, passed away. Yeah. So we will be chatting about him later on. So get ready to kind of practice your inner inner world. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, you get some. Pass me the Marlborough. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you were talking about um, debuts, and the three of us are kind of performers, I suppose, in one shape or another. Because Niall, you're an actor. Ross, you're a musician. Yes. I'm a radio presenter, but I reckon we all made our stage debut probably at a very tender age in, in the school play, I would imagine, uh, mm-hmm. was where we've had maybe debuts. Do you remember your first stage debut, Niall, your first ever one? I do, and I'm, I'm probably longer in the tooth than you because um, my first stage debut was when I went to university. I, I was too shy to go what? to be in the school play. I don't yeah. believe that for a I second. I can't believe that. Oh my no, god! It's true, absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, when I joined, when I went to UCD, all of the college societies had all their come and join us and be a fencer or a spelunker or a mountaineer or whatever. <laughs> what college did you go to? Joined <laughs> UCD. All literally, you could have done all of those things. Um, but the one that I 
was most attracted to for some reason was Dramsock. Uh, they were based in the basement, LG1 and LG2 of UCD. And uh, I auditioned for a play because why wouldn't you? Good way to meet girls, I'd heard. <laughs> and um, I got a part in As You Like It. And that was the first Fantastic. part that I was. And I, I auditioned for another play called Jazz Police at the same time. And Jazz Police <laughs> was a. Jazz Police is down in the annals of Irish theatre, I think, because it was directed by Willie White, who is a fantastic director, still working now in, in Irish theatre. And Jazz Police was an improvised show. So basically, he just got four actors to get together and they would improvise this play. But as you like it, obviously, it was written by William Shakespeare. <laughs> but um, the first part I got was as you like it. It turned and I auditioned for Jazz Police at the same time. Jazz Police came before as you like it, I think. Because like UCD or Dramsock and UCD was fantastic. They would show, they would do a show at lunchtime, a lunchtime show, and they would do an evening show. So like at one o'clock and eight o'clock, there'd be a show on. I learned so much about theatre there and I kind of fell in love with theatre there and just got such, I would almost say, as much of an education in UCD Dramsock as I did in UCD actual academia. <laughs> I love it. But like, what a what a way to be thrown in there then, like in terms of like an improvised play with this jazz well, piece. I, like, I, that's kind of a bit mad, is it? I think you're kind of, you're, you know, you're going to college, you're kind of, you decided, like, a, certainly I was going, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to be a different person, but I'm just going to take risks. I'm going to, you know, yeah. kind of fine. This is a whole new world, if you like. And Aladdin, I think, was coming out at the same time as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I was just kind of going, yeah. And look, obviously, the fencing, the spelunking, the mountaineering didn't take off. No. Even the film society. <laughs> film society didn't take off. And I remember I was a member of film society and I went to see Reservoir Dogs in uh, UCD film society. And that was like a big, like, oh my God, what what's this is a huge thing. But uh but theatre was the one that, that that stuck and held. Ah, and, and Ross, for you then, in terms of stage debut, was it like music related or were you like Jesus in the school play or something? <laughs> I was actually in a school play when I was in primary school. Um, I think it was some type of adaption of a nativity. I think it was around Christmas, but it was only to other people in our school. So it wasn't open to parents or you know anyone like that and uh we practiced i remember we practiced for like a week i think maybe they brought someone specially in for drama it might have been you know a teacher sick or something i don't okay. know yeah, yeah. Um, ross i'm i'm there's a lot of alarm bells going off in my head here so there were no family there was no family allowed. <laughs> a special person come in i'm just yeah. wondering what what kind of costume like going back i mean maybe we're uncovering stuff that we shouldn't really go into my psychiatrist said it's fine to talk about. <laughs> uh, but, but we had to learn the lines. And I think we got to make up some of the lines as well. So it was a very, it was a very creative process. And um, I remember forgetting a line. And I couldn't <gasps> remember it. And I was really embarrassed. But the next person just continued reading. Regar it. Regardless. So we, I think we got past that one. It was grand. As it turns out, I wasn't a terribly good actor, I don't think. So I don't think that... That was but a do you for do me. you remember what part? What, what were you a shepherd or were you a sure. camel? I, I, I can't. What's no this? idea at all. I didn't even get in the nativity, <laughs> so I can't yeah. really talk. I I have a very bad memory. I can't even remember what the play was about. I just know what it was meant to make you feel. Oh, 
Oh. All about the feelings, which is, aren't you? Well, that's yeah, it. which yeah. is f- fear of how bad Drahada children are at acting. How about yourself, Sinead? I'd say you had a head for drama, did you? I did. I did have a head for drama. Um, now, look at, you know, not so much the starring, you know, role as such of like, you know, never Mary or Joseph or, you know, any of that. But I was the narrator. So go figure. Oh, that is, that's the key role. <laughs> yeah, I that's tied it all together, man. Lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, the one people remember. I was narr- narrating um, the fact that Mary was on a cat or a donkey being led oh, to right. Bethlehem and uh, there was no room at the inn and your man was just shaking his head or the, the whatever child was just like, didn't even have lines. She just had to shake her head How as I you? went, there was no room at the inn. I, I definitely hammed it up 100%. And... Um, Hammed it up so much that in rehearsal, I twisted my ankle. So I had to sit on the stage in a chair. <laughs> that was my, it was my well, little. When you think about it, you were taking part in a grand tradition, which is stretched back, you know, maybe, maybe hundreds of years. I don't know. But I would say, I would imagine that a lot of professional actors, their first ever, 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 ever stage production is probably in nativity. So you're taking part in that grand tradition. Yeah. Hundred percent, and you, you know, as the narrator, keep, quite cool. keep me, keep me left out. What are you saying? Well, I'm sure. Well, listen, we can't all go to Shakespeare straight away. Like yeah. Jesus Christ, you know what I mean? I'm sure jazz police. Uh, no, I would like well. to say you're you're taking part in a fantastic tradition, which is most actors want to end their career sitting in a chair. <laughs> like, do yes. I, do I have to get up for this line, really, actor? <laughs> do I have to get up? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So that was our our, our kind of. I suppose, uh, debuted trip day in memory lane, but we are very much focused on, you know, actors, directors, writers and debuts. And I think we have picked some cracking movies to discuss. And of course, there could have been hundreds of others that we talked about tonight, but these ones are great. And I think true to form, Niall, you're going back in time as you as is your want. <laughs> I just picked probably one of the best films in cinema history, really. Um, so it is a rule of cinema. And we, I think one of our earliest episodes was about it, uh, that remakes are a bad idea. <laughs> Would you agree? Well, this is a... Yeah, this is the, the debate. The talking about is a remake. <laughs> yeah. It? The movie uh, we're talking about is a remake. A it's a, a damn good remake. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of movies it's, it where is. you presume the well-known one is actually the remake. You know, like The Wizard of Oz is another example. Yeah, yeah. So in 1941, one man basically proved that remakes are not a bad idea. Or maybe it would be safer to say that you can remake a movie as long as you're remaking bad movies. <laughs> yes. But be- before I talk about the movie I'm going to talk about, the directorial debut of a certain director uh, from 1941. I need to take you back to 1928 and a character called Dash, well a man I should say called Dashiell Hammett uh, to give him his full name, Samuel Dashiell Hammett. He was born in 1894 and he died in 1961 and he is known along I think with Raymond Chandler as the fathers of hard-boiled detective uh, novels and short stories and certainly the the movies that were based on their work have given birth to what we would know now as uh, film noir and it's important I guess to think about where murder mystery or certainly mystery novels or crime novels were before this and it would have been in the very cosy uh, drawing room of Agatha Christie 
But these two guys, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, dragged it onto the mean streets of the American city. And that's, I guess, why we remember them for the movie I'll be talking about and other movies like The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye and things like that. Um, so, The Maltese Falcon is the movie that I'm going to be talking about. And it was written in 1928 at the time when Dashiell Hammett, who had been hospitalised for tuberculosis, uh, was basically bedridden. And he started writing this story. Um, and it was originally serialised. It wasn't published as a book. It was serialised in a, in a magazine called Black Mask. Um, and it's uh, it's 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 a story that centre centers around a main character called Sam Spade, um, who had and will also appear in other stories by Dashiell Hammett. But this is really the Sam Spade story, if you like. The Maltese Falcon and Sam Spade they go hand in hand, um, and uh, Dashiell Hammett had a, a series of kind of well known characters. Uh, he, he didn't just have like Sam Spade. He had the Continental Op, who was a detective who worked for the Continental Detective Agency. We never knew his name. He had a series of books centered around Nick and Nora Charles, uh, which were the Thin Man books, and they were turned into a very entertaining series of, of black and white movies uh, that I remember starring William Penn, Myrna Loy. They were really good fun. But uh, The Maltese Falcon really is one of the, the greatest crime novels of all time. Um, so the, let we talk there that this the movie I'll be talking about from 1941 is not the first film version of this so if you're looking for the first film version it came out uh, only I think two or three years after the, the story first appeared the Maltese, Maltese Falcon um, was, was made into a movie in 1931 and it's what I call or what is called I should say a pre-code crime film so I don't know if you are familiar with the Hayes Code, either of you. Yes, this is when censorship mm. comes into play, isn't it? Yeah, basically, yeah. It's like, that's a bit too saucy. We're going yes. to not have that in this film. <laughs> so this is a pre-Hayes Code movie. So th this 1931 version has all the sauce you could want. In it. <laughs> Un <laughs> Unfortunately, it also has... Uh, it has Rich, Ricardo Tez as Sam Spade and Baby Daniels as Ruth Wonderly. I've not seen this. I don't know how saucy they get. It's directed by somebody called Roy Del Ruth. I, uh, history has not been kind to any of their CVs, so I'm not really going to kind of linger on this. But it's important to know, a couple of years after this story was written, someone said, let's make a movie out of it. And they made this one in 1931. Five years later, we always complain now about why are they remaking this? Why is it time for another Spider-Man? Is it time for another Batman now? <laughs> Five years long. later, yeah, 1936, Warner Brothers, they said, okay, can we re-release this movie? Because this is back in the time before VHS or DVD or Blu-ray. So it's just like we have a movie, we'd like to put it out in cinemas again. But because of the Hayes Code, the Hayes Code said too saucy for cinema you can't you can't put it out <laughs> so basically they said okay well we'll remake it and these this is back in the day when warner brothers would just go let's knock one out we'll do we spend a we spend four weeks in hey, the, hey in you the can't the knock studio. one out we'll after the haze code <laughs> yeah not with the haze code you can't <laughs> but we can do a haze code compliant version of this in four weeks and we can do it and that's what they did in 1936 with a film called satan met a lady and the only interesting thing about this film, this was directed by a guy called William Dieterle, 
and it starred a guy called Warren William. <laughs> you talk about a bland name. The only interesting thing about this is the femme fatale in this film was Bette Davis. Oh. And I might talk a little bit about how, what I think about the Maltese Falcon that we're going to be talking about in a, in a few moments. But Bette Davis, I think, would have been fantastic in the role of Bridget O'Shaughnessy, uh, uh, even like five years later. But like I say, five years later, it's like every five years they go, can we make a Maltese Falcon? Can we make a Maltese Falcon? <laughs> five years after Satan Met a Lady came out, uh, a screenwriter who was fresh off the success of getting Oscar nominated for his previous two films, <clears throat> which were Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet and Sergeant York, uh, he persuaded Warner Brothers to say, look, I'm I'm getting all these Oscar nominated movies. I'm writing them. Give me a chance to direct. And he was given the job of directing 1941's The Maltese Falcon, starring Humphrey Bogart as Detective Sam Spade and a whole gallery of fantastic actors. Um, and that man, of course, was John Marcellus Houston. So I don't really need to give you a big background into who John Houston is. But I will because that's I was just going to say, go for it anyway. <laughs> uh, he was born in 1906, so you know he was kind of he was in his <laughs> mid 30s, mid to late 30s by the time he got this job. Like I said, he had been writing movies for people like Howard Hawks, and it's funny because Howard Hawks would go on to direct Bogart in uh, The Big Sleep, and you know there there's a kind of a confluence. Whenever I think about Sam Spade, I think of Philip Marlowe, who is the the other detective, film noir detective, and he's from the Raymond Chandler series of books. And there are more books with uh, Philip Marlowe than there are with Sam Spade. But American film director John Huston, screenwriter, as I say, uh, visual artist, a painter, uh, actor as well. He travelled wildly. He's one of these guys, I think, that... He was kind of born as like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going off to, to Mexico now to be a painter. And then he goes off to, you know, Spain to be a bullfighter and things like that. People talk about him like he's the uh, Ernest Hemingway of movies. And I can see why they make that comparison. Um, He, like, apart from the Maltese Falcon, which we'll be talking about now, he went on to direct, like, some of the greatest movies in cinema history treasure of the Sierra, Ma Sierra Madre a couple of years after I think seven years after that um, the African Queen both of those with Humphrey Bogart the Misfits which was Marilyn Monroe's final movie or final completed movie and uh, Clark Gable was in there uh, the man who would be king which we almost talked about on our Sean Connery episode and uh, you know he's also as well known as an actor from things like Chinatown and uh, he worked with people like Orson Welles. He's a fascinating character. We could do an entire episode about it, but we don't have time tonight. You definitely, you could so, do a series yeah. of episodes. You could you do really an could. entire series of, yeah. about him. And he, like, he, he, not only is he a, a character who is so embedded in uh, cinema history, he has inspired movies mm. as well. Um, and one of them was a, a movie directed by and starring Clint Eastwood, uh, called White Hunter Blackheart. And this is based on a book about the actual events that took place when John Houston was uh, directing The African Queen in that he went to Africa not only to film the movie, but because he was obsessed with hunting and shooting uh, a bull elephant. 
So, I mean, that's I like I say, I've not seen that. I've not seen this movie. It doesn't really paint him in a great light, I would imagine. <laughs> the other the other kind of legacy he has, I think, on movie history is the fact that uh, if I said to you now, Ross, if you had a milkshake and I had a milkshake and I have a straw and my straw reaches into your milkshake, I drink your milkshake, Ross. I drink your milkshake. Yeah, I you, think you'll know who you'll know who I'm talking about. You're talking about you being a terrible it's, dinner it's, guest. It's it's, it's yeah, <laughs> there will there will be milk. <laughs> which it there is, will be yeah, if you try to steal be. my milkshake. <laughs> just imagine if somebody comes to your to your dinner party and just has a giant straw. <laughs> um, and you know that apparently is where uh, Daniel Day Lewis got his vocal inspiration for. Daniel Plainview wow. in There Will Be Bloods. Because yeah, he's from, very distinctive. And, distinctive yeah, I mean, Houston has an incredibly distinctive voice. And that's why I think he became as well known, I suppose, from his acting for his acting roles. And they, like his, his father, Walter Houston, was an actor. And he was an actor himself before he became a, a writer and director. But on stage, basically. But, you know, he always had that in him, uh, that kind of... Uh, presence i suppose and i suppose people who who know him or knew him i should say um they would have talked about the fact that he was a larger than life character um but we are not here well we are talking talk we are here to talk about him and his film debut as a director and it's the 1941 american uh, film as we say written and directed by uh, john houston now there's a little bit of a, a story behind this. People say this is the most uh, faithful adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's book. And the reason they say that is that apparently John Huston told his secretary just to type out all the dialogue in the book. <laughs> and she <laughs> left it on her desk and somebody came along and picked it up and went, hey, this is this is fantastic. Let's just do this. Let's film this one. So, so when you say I mean, writer, it's uh... well. I mean, look, it's yeah. I mean, all the dialogue in the movie is from the book, but where he really shows his his uh, talent, I guess, is in the in the filming of. You know, I mean the mm. the. Uh, I don't know how much I want to talk. You, you've both seen this movie, I guess. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it though in yeah. ages and ages. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I had. Recently. I had seen it and uh, rewatched it then uh, for for this podcast. And the story is, uh, it's basically about uh, a, a San Francisco private detective, and he's got he's got these three unscrupulous adventurers, basically played by um, Peter Laurie, who's fantastic in this film. Sydney Greenstreet, who's also fantastic. I, I love Peter Laurie. You know, I, I, he's he's been parodied so much, though, hasn't he? God bless oh, him. Oh, he has. The Maltese Falcon. It's like <laughs> but when you look at him in this, and he had come from Germany, like he had come, he had been a very successful film actor in Germany, and made he was a big star. That I, 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 there's some great. You can look at them on YouTube. Great documentaries just about his life. He had a fascinating life, and of course, he would on to work with Bogart again in Casablanca mm. uh, the year after this as would Sydney Greenstreet 
the weak link I feel in this and I don't like because I think it's a fantastic film so I don't want to be going this is what lets it down is Mary Astor playing the femme fatale um, she's just yeah. a little too prim and proper yeah for me. she's not she's not femme fatale material I would have said and I totally no. think what you were saying there earlier about uh, Bette Davis Bette like, Davis like, would yeah, have been amazing fantastic in yeah. this yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah. but I don't want to speak badly. I also think the name of your femme fatale is important. Yeah. Um, Bridget O'Shocknessy. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like I an Irish know. mammy with like about 20 children. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Clutched yeah, into her apron. I mean, maybe it's a cultural bias that we have. I don't know. But um, look, she still does a great job. By the end of it, I kind of forget it. But I just, I feel when you look at the... Certainly, like I say, if you imagine Beth Davis in this and you see that the, the chemistry that uh, Bogart had with Lauren Bacall then in mm. like Key, mm. Key Largo and the big sleep then after this, like that's how you f- fatal your femme. If you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, should have, she should have a name like Vicky Veneer or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to speak ill of uh, Mary Astor. Um, and the name certainly uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy was picked by Dashiell Hammett. I don't know. Maybe that was the most exotic, sexy name that you could come up with as you're in a tuberculosis ward in 1928. Uh, but it's it's a fantastic film. I mean, we talked earlier on about what he would go on to do, not only as a, a director, but as an actor. He was a larger life uh, character, John Huston, that his shadow still looms over cinema. There would be... Um, I was talking to a friend of the podcast recently who I won't name uh, who uh, they were talking about you know Harrison Ford at the Oscars was talking about all the notes that they got about um, about uh, Blade Runner and yeah. Blade Runner of course famously is a is a film that Ross hates and everybody <laughs> hates Ross because he doesn't like Blade Runner but yeah, um, this friend of mine was saying uh, I've, I've never seen Blade Runner and I was going, oh, you have to, you have to see Blade Runner. You have to Hope see it. Hope you steered like him away from ones. it. No, don't see it. Save yourself. But no, because I, he said to me, and I can kind of understand it. He said, I, I haven't seen it because I've seen all of the movies that it has influenced. So mm. I don't want to go back, go back and see kind of the the original because it was like, oh well, that's just like something that was done better in blah blah blah. Maybe that's why Ross doesn't like it. Maybe he's just not. But Without the Maltese Falcon and without the Big Sleep and without all of the movies that they influenced, there would be no Blade Runner and there would be no all of the other movies that they influenced then, you know. So I think it is important to kind of remember where the Ur-text comes from. The Ur-text meaning the very first time that somebody scribbled out the Maltese Falcon, Sam Spade. Now, maybe we don't have to go back to 1931's (laughs) horrific version of it. That was the wrong one. Certainly, I don't know. I mean, maybe there would be film noir without the Maltese Falcon, but who knows? I mean, it's it just like I say, that Falcon casts a shadow on all of cinema. Yeah, you can see its influence everywhere. And even if you hadn't seen it and you watch it for the first time, you'd be like, "I've seen this." Yeah, I've seen this before. And <laughs> you know, yes, it's that kind yeah, of yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It it has that that you know. It's been I you know i don't know if you'd say robbed from but it's influenced so much so moving then swiftly to the 90s for you ross and sticking kind of with the crime theme with this and 
this is a great pick can i just say and oh, yeah. this a great movie as well that kind of um i don't know what kind of approach you're going to go with this but part of me really wants you to spoil this <laughs> <laughs> and part of me really doesn't want you to spoil this so whatever you decide i will keep mum or i will talk depending on what you decide about this <laughs> you keep mum oh, i knew you're gonna say that yeah, Spoils i don't want to wreck this movie for anyone who hasn't seen it so um i suppose for anyone who has seen it you maybe know what i'm talking about but i'm gonna keep it under my hat because i think this is a movie that um it doesn't maybe it probably wouldn't be as well known maybe as some other famous debuts but i think it's an absolutely fantastic one so i know niall was talking about um you know a film director john euston and and his debut movie or their, their, their directorial debut the maltese falcon but i'm going to put my focus on an actor and this actor you definitely know him from his starring roles in fight club and american history x He's played the Hulk. He's appeared in Wes Anderson movies, Moonrise Kingdom and the Grand Budapest Hotel. And we actually mentioned him on a podcast before because he played the role of Will Graham in Red Dragon. So for my choice, I decided to look back at a thriller from 1996, which features the debut of one Edward Norton. Um, I am, of course, talking about Primal Fear. Uh, it's a courtroom thriller. It's directed by Gre Gregory Hoblet in his actual directorial debut feature length you know wide release directorial debut he did do a lot of um you know tv work before that it's based on william dial's 1993 novel of the same name primal fear and it was kind of a richard gear uh, movie it's it, he's at the center of it and he plays this arrogant smug chicago defense lawyer who loves nothing more than boosting his own profile a bit like the three presenters on the real take podcast <laughs> but um but <laughs> so when he hears basically that there's an influential catholic archbishop in chicago um we can see that richard gear is on name terms with him but as soon as he finds out that he's been brutally murdered uh richard gear sees on the news the police are chasing one of the archbishop's altar boys from the scene looking pretty guilty i must say he's he's getting he's running away from the crime scene absolutely covered in blood and richard gear is watching this on the telly practically licking his lips so like he immediately gets in touch with, with aaron who's the altar boy played by edward norton to offer his services pro bono and um, so obviously he's not going to get any money from this trial but it's the profile it's the it's the, the cameras the glory, it's, it's, yeah, it? ex yeah exactly exactly uh, that's what he's chasing the way through um now kind of quite opposite to richard gear we have aaron played by edward norton um he's he's like a really quiet reserved guy he's very shy and perhaps you know he has a bit of a stutter perhaps you know he's a little bit on the slow side maybe and um you know despite richard gear insisting at several times throughout the movie that he doesn't really care if his client is guilty or not he really underlines that fact um in an interview he's giving in the movie um he really says he doesn't care about the, the guilt he's on about having your own truth but he becomes convinced of edward norton's innocence and he's determined that he's not found guilty of murder and i don't really want to tell you much more about <laughs> i was gonna movie. see yeah. how you're gonna go next <laughs> yeah. because it's so you know hard to talk it's about so it. hard yeah. to talk about this movie i remember seeing this i think on television and just being absolutely blown away i think it was like on a, a you know it was one of those late night kind of saturday night kind of movies mm. happened upon it and um i just thought oh my god 
what an amazing performance from Ed Norton. First of all, I was like, oh my God, he's so young. And then realized, obviously, you know, the year that the year it's made yeah. and everything. Yeah, because I, I was, I was going to ask then, because I probably saw it before either of you. No, use. Sorry, I'm sounding very young. I saw it before either of you. I didn't see it in the cinema, but I did rent it when it came out. Mm. And I, I, I had never heard of Edward Norton. So I had mm. no preconceptions going in. So I'm wondering seeing it did when you when I mean it's a fantastic performance in this film and um, but when you know what he is capable of and what yeah. he went on to do mm. did you kind of think oh the you know something there's something coming up now with him no no I didn't at all it was one of those like oh my god what the heck moment I was completely sucked into it now I'd say the one of the films that I would have seen Edward Norton in uh, the first movie that I would have seen him in was American History X so Mm. talk about it completely in a lot of ways okay yeah I don't want to say too much but like not he's let's say it's different it's very different characters it's an amazing it's a transformation a huge transformation huge transformation yeah the other one uh, would be like the one I always remember him from is um, Fight Club yeah yeah which is again another it deals with I guess some of the themes of this performance Mm -hmm. but sorry I'm stepping on Ross you're okay actually because that's a really good point because the score as well I kind of got that hint from him so I had actually the first time I saw this movie was after I saw (coughs) Fight Club was after I saw American History X like Sinead I kind of caught it one day kind of just happened to be on television and i remember really really enjoying it and just being blown away by by the uh by the kind of conclusion of the movie but um yeah it's it, it I, look, this is a really really great movie and it's, it's one i really enjoyed i personally i, I love a courtroom drama so any excuse to watch a courtroom drama i'll, I'll absolutely jump on it um, objection <laughs> sustained sustained oh there we go um but, it, but i mean here this is one of the things sorry before you you go on because i want to get your conclusion but when i when i rented this it was like do i really want to see richard gear in a courtroom drama called primal fear it's got a terrible title terrible title based, terrible. Yeah. yeah based based on the book so they probably are and it's also richard gear seems to have spent i'm sure he probably hasn't but he just seems to have played slimy lawyers yeah. in he does it really, really well, but it just seems yeah. like I can I can name you now seven films in which he's played slimy lawyers. <laughs> and it, I probably can't, but Well, it it's not so like much that. lawyer, he's just like that slimy character because he's kinda of like that as well in like say Runaway Bride, he's kinda of like that slimy right. reporter kind okay, of character. Okay. Um okay. as well. Yeah. Like he's kinda of slimy character as well in Pretty Woman, let's be be honest. Like uh, but, but um, I know I, I know he listens, so we, we, we <laughs> Richard, we love you. You for massive, all, all you work on to best <laughs> and yeah all the best. but, uh, but, but yeah, no and i think I, I no i was just going to say as well the other thing again like i i was talking about it with the sean connery thing two word titles in mm. 90s thrillers it was yeah. like mm. primal fear just cause but it's like what are these films about yeah. i don't know it sounds like you're trying to think of a band name you know like yeah. you know yeah. 40 yeah. thinking of a band name think it's yeah people trying to name of think of a john grisham type thriller yeah <laughs> title uh, but yeah look yeah. it is richard geared as most richard geariest um you know he's playing martin vale you know obviously very cocky kind of like a slimy sexist bastard as well yeah but that being said like if you're looking for a, you know a gang an italian american gangster you go to robert de niro if you're looking for a slimy smug prick you go to yep. richard gear yeah and he actually i thought you know 
this this role was just tailor made from it suited yeah. him down to the ground and he was perfect in it you know i think i don't think there would be another actor who i think he's the best man for that job so yeah it's a little bit of his typecast kind of uh, the role he would usually be yeah. put in but you know he, i mean he, is, he has a, again not not to spoil he has a great arc that character has a great arc yeah i was gonna yeah. say There's yeah he really more... really changes and he really grapples with everything and he yeah. he leaves a bit of a shell of a man let's say at the end but i did like the back and forth as well with him and laura linney's character oh, uh yeah. she's the great defense lawyer yeah. or the yeah. the uh what the fuck is the other the opposing prosecution, lawyer. Poison, yeah, like, prosecution. Yeah, yeah. there you go um because besides ed norton and, and richard you do, you do have an amazing like supporting cast in there even it's a lot of like up and coming kind of actors for for, for a lot of parts i like give laura linney she's playing john and venable she um you know it's not surprising that She's, you know, obviously the the lawyer on the other side, but all, all of course there was sexual history, you know, yeah. between herself and Richard Gere. Um, well, it was Richard Gere. Who could blame? Yeah, him? look at him. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Man. It was the nineties. Yeah, uh, uh, but as well as that, you always you also have Frances McDormand, who of course recently won a, oh, a, another Oscar. Yeah, for I forgot. Acting. Yeah, she's yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, she's a psychologist and a small enough role, but I think a really she really excels in what little she has to do in it. Um, as well as that, you have. Um, you have more more tyranny as well uh who's playing richard gear's assistant again she doesn't do much in the movie <laughs> you know but she, she is there you have alfred woodard who, who you might know as the assistant it's a scrooge she's the judge in the movie but really i i was surprised because i was re-watching this recently and i noticed there's an awful lot of tv stars well not necessarily exclusively tv stars but you know stars you'd recognize off the telly um like you have you have Andre Brower, who is the, the police chief in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You have Tony Plana as well, who you might recognize, uh, you know, as Ugly Betty's dad. You have Terry O'Quinn in there, who's Locke from Lost. And oh, John, he's great, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's perfect in that sort of role. I think we see him in a similar kind of role in old school. He plays Luke Wilson's, um, Luke Wilson's boss as well. You have John Mahoney as well. Um, I'm going to say Mahoney because he's American, not Mahoney, because, you know. Um, but you I always said Mahoney, though, as yeah, well. Maybe too, it's because yeah. I'm Irish, but yeah. yeah. Oh, did you? Like he came it, over to but, Ireland a few times to, to do plays. Well, I actually, strange enough, there's no, there's no Mahoney's over here, there's Mahoney's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mahoney's, yeah. Um, but actually, you know, strange enough, um, you're the, the person you picked, John Euston, as well, was uh, came back and forth to Ireland, just like John Mahoney. Um that's right. He, yeah, yeah. For a while there. but um, anyway, look, you he had he renounced his his U U S passport to be to have an Irish passport. Yeah, nice. It was a whole thing. I didn't get mm. into, <laughs> and he kind of set up Ardmore Studios and stuff like That's that. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, but um, kind of moving back to it, I suppose John Mahoney. Like, obviously, you'd recognize him from Frasier as the dad, but you know, you'd, you'd also recognize him from those other movies, like like Primal Fear or like Moonstruck or like uh, Say Anything as well. Um, but really, you know, obviously the the lead characters in this is Richard Gere, and as I said, I think it's probably one of his better performances as well. I just think it's set made from. But it's Ed Edward Norton that really shines in this movie, and it is his debut. So fair play to him. Um, what what I think is incredible about this though is his debut. Is it sort of came out of nowhere, like before nineteen ninety six. He was working odd jobs in New York. I think he lived in Japan for a while for working with his uncle's company. Um, you know, he was writing scripts for a play for 
the non-profit signature theater company in new york and he was starring in some off-way productions um one in particular that got him noticed was his role in in lovers which is a brian freel play brian freel of course being from northern ireland and it was only when casting agent shirley rich took notice of him in in the mid 90s career his career just really really took off like before primal fear usually you'd see an actor having you know some tv work maybe you know they were an extra or maybe they had a small talking part or they're on a cop show or something like that you usually actors kind of build up to being in a a feature-length movie but that wasn't the case with edward norton at all like before before primal fear his only on-screen work that i could see he was credited for was only in america which is just an educational video short to help people learn american english at a beginner level so okay. he started there and then his next his next soiree was was a uh, primal fear um so shirley rich who was the, the casting uh the casting director i was talking about she introduced ed norton who was 27 at this time um so he he, he wasn't very like he looks much younger in the movie he looked i think he's playing like a a 19 or a 20 year old but he, he was actually 27 in actuality uh, she introduced him to the producers of Brian Fear, but, but he had to he had to he had to you know beat over 2,000 other up-and-coming actor actors for the role of Aaron um, and, and includes the likes of Matt Damon who wow. would of course go on to star with in Rounders James Marsden um, Edward Furlong um, who actually he would star alongside in American History X James Vanderbeek, which is showing how 90s this cast and call might have Oh, been. God, could you imagine <laughs> yeah. him in that now? <laughs> hang That'd on, hang disaster. on. There's one, there's one name missing from the 90s pantheon of big names. Who well, is that? Is there? Is there? Well, Give that us was a clue. Leonardo, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. Who, there of course, we go. was up for yeah, every yeah. role like this. And, I, I, and yeah. he was the one who the producers actually had originally eyed for the role. Um, but he turned it down. I, I I think he would have done a <coughs> fine job, Leonardo, yes. and I'm not his biggest fan. But mm. this is something interesting. I don't know if we if we have time to talk about it. But um, what Norton brings to this part is absolute conviction. Mm. In that Leonardo DiCaprio, you always feel like there's something going on behind the eyes that you're not a hundred percent sure about. You mm. don't. It's not that I don't believe him, but it's like. Ah, uh, you know, you're there's 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 two Leonardos there. Okay. Whereas Edward, I think, and he shares this with another actor who I who I really like called um Mark Ruffalo, and they're both big, funny enough, environmental campaigners. But I just believe everything they they tell me when they're acting it's like there's yes. no artifice there i think they Leonardo also both played the hulk role. so maybe that's they I also know. both played the hulk that could yeah be it's it, good yeah. tapping into but your Le- you know leonardo is, is i think leonardo's really good in once upon a time in hollywood i loved him in that because he has that veneer i'm mm. acting i'm performing the whole time edward norton mark ruffalo these are actors and they played these characters like with uh double double sides or or secret selves or whatever but i always believed them when they're yeah. doing it it's just like mm. yeah you're being so sincere but anyway sorry yeah because i think with ed norton as well you know he has that vulnerability there you know that kind of 
innocence in this character of Aaron that kind of you know I, he's kind of every boy do you know that sort of way whereas Leonardo DiCaprio maybe he's just a little bit too pretty as well and you know you're kind of going I, I, oh I don't yeah. know you're like from the wrong side of the tracks a bit too much maybe well, I, as well I, I, you know? I feel like yeah like Leonardo in that part would have just lived a little bit more than yes innocent. but then again when when he has to flip it as well it yeah. makes it all oh. the more oh, oh no all spoilers the no spoilers do you know Whatever. what and, 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 and people don't I think if people haven't seen this movie don't google it because it's definitely no. going to tell you watch yeah. it try watch go it. Watch it go watch it go watch it yeah it's a yeah. great um, thriller great example like you say it's got a fantastic cast I mean once I don't think you'd agree Ross we're not saying when we talk about TV actors this is the best TV you have to offer you know when you're talking about yes. Andrew Brower mm. and Terry O'Quinn mm. and stuff like that and those are people that you see them in movies you kind of go yeah I know I'm in I'm in I'm in good hands now for this film and Absolutely. it is like it's a great if it comes up on TV and you don't know anything about it just even though you might go Prime of Fear what's that is that about a monkey what's it about <laughs> <laughs> dive right in and it, it shows it like it you know as I said obviously he started with an explosion and his career really kicked off from there like 90, before 1996 no one in the world had heard of Edward Norton in 1996 everyone knew who Ed Norton was because in that year he also starred in Everyone Says I Love You a Woody Allen movie and he was also in The People vs. Larry Flint and then you just got a slew of really well known movies he was in Rounders American History X Fight Club Keeping the Fate you know which is a rom-com but it was his, his directorial debut The Score which he was in with you know two of his idols Robert De Niro and Marilyn Brando and he, he went on and he's just been like a household name ever since. And he once cited the likes of Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro, who probably wouldn't be your conventional handsome movie stars as being an inspiration for him because he always felt he was more, I suppose, average looking or whatever, or average Joe looking. And, um, you know, in Hollywood, which is a maybe a place that focuses on a lot of, you know, beauty and stuff like that, he's very much a normal looking dude. He looks like people you meet around the town which mm. makes him even more fascinating or an enigma as a bit of a movie star because he is a movie star right he, like oh definitely might have faded like he this is a guy who you know he's he, his first movie he was 27 and he had two oscar nominations by the time he was 30 you know so that's that's a that's a that's a bit of an yeah, achievement yeah. Uh, by itself i i felt i felt edward norton's career for me has a bit of up and down to it I think he started with a bang, went a bit weird with it. Uh, and then in maybe in recent years, you know, with the likes of, um, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel and Birdman, which he, he got nominated for an Oscar for as well. Maybe he's coming back the right direction. Although, to be honest, the last few movies I saw him in, he voiced a character in Sausage Party, which is, you know, it's a great, it's a, you know, it's a funny <laughs> movie or whatever, but it's not going to cement you in the annals of, in the annals of uh, movie history. Uh, and motherless Brooklyn, which I uh, thought was a bit of a disappointment. So I'm not sure oh, where I really his enjoyed that. Was... I, oh, did I remember seeing it in the cinema. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I thought I he didn't. did. He adapted it from the novel, um, which is completely different. I thought he did a really good job. You can listen to it my as well. review. Of it. He did. Yeah, you can listen yeah. to my review of it when it came out in the cinema um, on our uh, sister podcast. <laughs> <laughs> real real reviews uh, but no no I thought I thought he was yeah I thought it was I love the soundtrack to that film and mm. I thought he took a story that he wanted to tell the novel is totally different um, and 
just distilled it down into the a story that he really wanted to tell i thought his performance was was great in a similar maybe like there was a little bit of his character from primal fear in there um in that you know well i won't say too much and i really liked um alec baldwin as well as the as the as the big bad uh in in that movie so. Yeah, I I wasn't overly. It remind it kind of reminded me of another period, like kind of crime movie at the time, Live by Night, that Ben Affleck, um, Ben Affleck uh, starred okay, in. Okay, I, have, I haven't seen that one. See that one yeah, now. and it just I don't know, it just didn't do anything for me. I think he's an int- he had an interesting career. Obviously, like in a, a, the early part of his career in the late nineties, early two thousands, he was kind of a hot property. Uh, it'd be interesting to see where his career goes from here, though. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, yeah. I don't think he has to prove himself. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no, no. oh I think he's. Yeah, you know, he, I, I think, think he proves himself he, within the first three or four years of being. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, he had definitely. the other. The other thing that kind of hang or the the miasma around him is that he's difficult to work with. I don't know if oh. you've any. No, if you. I've never you heard that. No. F- oh, okay. I, never right. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe it's because the Incredible Hulk. I've heard. Um, he oh, he kept um, just he just kept set. going green and trashing the set. Yeah, right? he's just very yeah, method no, acting. But, the, <laughs> but there, yeah, no, he 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 signed on with specific things in his contract, and then they the director he wasn't happy with how the director was doing it, and essentially he went in and re-edited the film, and then there was a whole thing. And you hear about it; it it's something that follows him throughout his career. Is that he's just and I wonder. I mean, there's a thin line between being incredibly focused and being difficult to work with mm. Um, mm. so I don't like I say I've now I, like you say Ross I've never worked with him either but well he does you know he was like he did study method acting which I know is something that gets held up as this uh, amazing you know thing but every time I hear he's a method actor I hear he's a complete wanker <laughs> you know it just, it just it just screams up their own arse and difficult to work with maybe I'm being unfair on method actors no 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 I mean like the the actors that you talk about that he held up as his idols um, De Niro and um, well Pacino and Hoffman and Mm. even Anthony Hopkins who again were recording this just after the Oscars so we keep talking about the Oscars Um, they they would have been more into acting earlier in their career and as their careers have gone on they have left it I mean you know for example the part that he plays in Birdman and I think he's fantastic in that but I think that's kind of what he's like Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, say it's kind of maybe it's more of a cameo. Or, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, maybe he's self-aware enough to know that this is, you know, this is what yeah. people think of me. But mm. imagine, like, I think that's one of the reasons why um, he plays that so well is that he can identify with that that aspect of it. So maybe he's getting to that part of his career where he's just going like Anthony Hopkins now and De Niro, I think, as well is is just like you know, method acting is for students you know yeah. It's, it's yeah you know and it looks not, like he, he isn't not. afraid to maybe take the piss out himself a little bit like a phase <coughs> role in moonrise kingdom is definitely tongue-in-cheek as is maybe the one in in uh the grand budapest hotel and as well as that he was yeah, yeah. In, in the dictator as well and stuff like that so maybe he doesn't take himself maybe he's growing to take himself less seriously maybe mm. as we all should as we, we should. all should and you know uh yeah it's a great it's a great pick great pick ross and it probably ties in nicely with mine because it was probably around this time. What was it? 96, you said, was it? Or 94? 
that that yeah. movie came out 96? 96 96 yeah. yeah well around about kind of the time 1994 kind of period the voiceover narrator in trailers was becoming less and less and actually the man the voice of god the man that you always heard on uh, movie voiceover trailers was don lafontaine and he did in fact do the voiceover for the trailer for primal fear and why am i talking there you go we have Uh, to hear some of it now put some in yeah okay let's put let's put a bit in let's put a bit in in the game called fame in the business called justice there's one lawyer they love to hate even when the headline is murder he's the one who's the real story primal fear so there he is the voice of god himself and why am i talking about him well my movie that i have selected is a fantastic movie from 2013 and it's all kind of around this inner world in a world where three people come together you know uh because basically uh the the background history actually into this whole sort of voiceover for movie trailers is kind of cool uh obviously back in the day of silent movies there was title cards and stuff like that and then as time went on they had to have voiceover narrators to kind of summarize the movie um as a way of selling it and you know people who went to the cinemas um Obviously, they at the time, particularly uh, initially, they liked to kind of sit through advertisements of other movies and all that kind of thing. Um, and a very interesting fact, in 1964, the voiceover trailer industry changed with a Western called Gunfighters of Casa Grande. Uh, what happened with this was the announcer didn't show up on the day and the crew had to present something to MGM so that they could sell the advertising spots. So what happened? Well, a recording engineer stepped up to the mark and it was pretty great because this recording engineer was, of course, Don LaFontaine. So it, that was his very first kind of stepping into this, um, you know, right in a world right place, kind right of time. thing. Yeah, total right place, right time. And he became this voice of God. And just for a little bit of a teaser, because it's actually excellent. Here's a little bit of him in Gunfighters of Casa Grande. Just giving you the little uh, the little voiceover trailer for that. Across the Rio Grande to Mexico they came. Five desperate men with guns swinging. Five fast guns who fought with explosive fury to shape the destiny of the West. This one's Carvajal, Don Jose. Rojo second in command. Take these two out, monsieur. You, Carvajal. Tell Rojo what it means to ride against the Casa Grande. Starring Alex Nichol as Daylight, Joe Daylight, the border raider who won the Casa Grande, and all that went with it. So this guy, as I mentioned, voice of God, huge library of work. So he pretty much from then on, 1964, right up until his death, really, in 2000, uh, 2008, you know, he was doing this a lot. But in the 80s, particularly, he was at the top of his game. So much so, he was chauffeured around in a white stretch Lincoln town car. His initials and the number plate with a crown. 
uh, he also had a phone and a fax machine apparently as well in the car that he could print the scripts as he rolled around so this is kind of you know he was very kind of like this kind of character um, in 1994 though the work sort of dwindled uh, he still popped up in trailers but it was for movies that were like really kind of hard hitting big blockbusters so like Die Hard with a Vengeance Independence Day as well and of course Primal Fear that I mentioned there but the, he, he wasn't in every single one you know and then you know as time kind of went on um, movies then took a different approach to kind of I suppose marketing themselves they used to take just maybe clips out and use the actors to actually tell you what was going on or act might have read from a slightly alternative script than say in the movie specifically for the trailer but um he was the single busiest actor in the screen actor guild you know around kind of say the 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 90s and really i think you know up until his 2000s he was still doing an awful lot of voiceover work and things but then uh, he, he sadly passed away in 2008 but then you see we moved into you know the likes of say the huge franchises like the marvel industry like harry potter where we already knew who these characters were and the worlds that they were in so we didn't need an inner world guy basically to tell us what what, what they were all about <laughs> in a world um, you already know because yeah. you've seen all the other films exactly and it was a film five years ago as well. They've just remade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and the Maltese pa- Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, this brings me then to this because um, Lake Bell, Lake Bell, fantastic uh, actor, writer, director. Um, but people will know her, obviously, first of all, as an actor. She decided that, you know, she kind of did a bit of, I suppose, research into, into this, but her fascination with inner world started off with Don LaFontaine and why he was the kind of the only guy and not only that why there was no women of course doing in a world except for one and it's a very short bit and uh, she doesn't do in a world but she is a voiceover um and her name is Melanie Disney and the movie that she does the the voiceover narration, uh, or sorry, Melissa Disney, uh, the voiceover narration for is um, gone in sixty seconds. Time it took them, them, them. Oh, let's go, let's go, go. To steal your car. Hello, ladies. Sixty seconds. Sixty seconds. Gone. Sixty seconds. This was the only kind of female. Uh, person that has done this kind of voiceover trailer uh, narration so Lake Bell just to give you a little bit of background on her right she um, people I suppose she's kind of almost a that gal or that girl kind of actress mm-hmm. she was very much kind of supporting roles for a lot of time um, she did make her small screen debut with projects such as War Stories opposite Jeff Goldblum also Mismatch uh, opposite Alicia Silverstone but she came to everyone's attention really I think um, as Sally Heap the lawyer who beguiles James Spader on The Practice which uh, was a series that ran kind of uh, on ABC until 2004 from 1997 and also Boston Legal as well um, so that's kind of spin-off yeah, yeah spin-off of that um, but she's an excellent comedic supporting actress and she really delights in roles uh, like I want to kind of say snarky women maybe uh, yeah. movies like what happens in Vegas it's complicated no strings attached she's kind of always like either the best friend or you know these kind of side characters but very very memorable um, so she 
decided then to move into kind of I suppose behind the camera kind of work as well she wrote and directed the short film Worst Enemy that debuted at Sundance in 2012 and then followed up 2013 with her feature film directoring uh, directorial debut in In a World so she stars in this as well written starred by her or whatever um and uh it's it's a fantastic idea it really is a fantastic yeah. idea and um she was inspired you know by this don uh, lafontaine uh, voice of god kind of character and you know she says there's no notable film tra- trailers that have really employed female voiceover talent except for gone in 60 seconds so she was intrigued by this kind of i suppose omniscient voice uh, that was always male behind uh, behind movies so this is kind of what inspired her to do this so in the movie in the world it's very much about a female protagonist that is i suppose trying to to, to be this in a world uh, character so it centers initially on um a, a character called sam soto and he's a hollywood actor and he's very much known as the king of voiceovers so this is the kind of homage to don uh, lafontaine and he's noted for his extensive narration and voiceover work and he's recently published his autobiography and he's about to you know get this lifetime achievement award turning 60 and he's trying he's trying his best to bow out of the industry but he he, you know he wants to he's hanging on to the crown you know um then his 31 year old daughter carol played by lake bell she's a struggling vocal coach uh of course she's always been overshadowed by her father why she would even want to go into this industry with her dad who her dad is it's it's beyond me um and we meet her kind of she's (laughs) she's agreeing to help uh eva longoria who can i just say is fantastic in this she's got a really um great cameo role in this uh to loop her accent as a british mob boss wife and her solution to this is to put a cork in her mouth and get her to do vowels and stuff very funny um but she hears that an upcoming film series the amazon games plans to bring back the in a world line and uh this is highly sought after so uh, Sam, her dad, decides that, look, at, you know, I'm not going to do this in a world. I'm going to pass the mantle on to my 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 uh, protege, Gustav Warner. He's going to do this. But poor old Gustav uh, de- develops laryngitis and he fails to show up to a temp track recording. Carol happens to be in the studio when the engineer, Lewis, uh, gets her to substitute. And um, the, the series producer... Uh, decides, do you know what? There's something maybe in in this Carol she character. A, she did a bit of a Don LaFontaine La herself. She did a bit of a Don mm-hmm. LaFontaine herself, absolutely. Um, so that's kind of all I'm going to say because it's kind of then you know it descends into this kind of battle for the in the world and all this kind of stuff. But what's great about it, and it's something that I, I I've brought up before, is this idea of male voices and the power of the male voice um as well and particularly in the world of voiceover particularly in the world of broadcasting i mean listen i don't have to go on about the fact that there's not that many female voices on radio out there but it's this kind of uh, it doesn't shove it down your throat this feminist idea that's kind of been this feminist message that's been played out in the in this movie you know um and that and it's done very much with an awful lot of comedy um but one of the things that i really enjoyed as well about it was um this uh, and it's something that lake bell herself i think really wanted to kind of get across to people was this idea that women have to talk in this sexy baby way 
this sexy baby <laughs> way where everything is kind of like this and we all talk and it's kind of like a question at the end of sentence, you know, where you basically sound like you're absolutely stupid uh, that you have a brain in your head. And there's a great scene, and I think you might play a little bit of it. There's a great scene where um, she's on the phone, she's trying to uh, figure out a job, I think it is, and there's this girl that comes into, um, uh, I think it's a her her office where she's working and she's looking for directions to she's looking for directions to a smoothie place and uh like like bell's character carol just copies her voice uh and it's it's great uh, here, here's the scene here's the scene no, what you think? All right, uh, hi. Just, hello no no please just take your other call I... okay later do you know where i get a smoothie around here um i'm sorry i i uh i'm not... sorry i didn't hear what you said i said i don't know where you'd get a smoothie around here at all for you because you sound like a squeaky toy and I don't mean that in a bad way but I mean like I think you're better than that you know what I mean and I think we're all better than that it's good for the species you know what I mean but uh, there's also a um, Jamba Juice like two blocks away from here if you wanted to because I bet you were looking for a smoothie maybe not I don't know but if you were you know you know what so she is bringing up this message of you know women don't sound like that and why have we adopted this sexy baby way of going on and actually in the promotion for the movie as well she very much talks an awful lot about that and you know it's troubling to her she's kind of she really wants women to speak properly god damn it um but uh it's it's a fantastic debut i mean from and i think it kind of for me because i would have just seen her in movies like what happens in vegas as the snarky best friend kind of thing i was really surprised by how incredibly talented you know she is because i think whilst she is great in those movies you just don't get to see her flourish as much as she does obviously behind the camera and in this central role in a world you know and it's one of those kind of quirky under the radar independent movies that i think was shot in like 20 days or something like that um it's got a it's got a really great cast great cast yeah I first came across her in a, it was actually an internet series. You can probably still find it called Children's Hospital, which is like a series of 10, oh, yeah. 15 minutes oh, okay. kind of comedy things with a lot of like the same cast that, that you'll find in this. I think she called in like a few Ken favors. Marino and Ken Yeah, Ken you've got Cordroy. Rob Cordroy's in there as well. Yeah, Porter, she started yeah. him actually in, in What Happens in Vegas as well. Uh, and I have to mention, of course, Fred Melamed. Is that his second name? Melamed? Melamed. Melamed. Yes, Mel- yes. He plays, of course, Sam, the, the in a world dad uh, bit as well. But yeah, fantastic. And a, a voice, cast. I think, that, you know, is worthy of done. Uh, yes. De- fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Great voice. But uh, I, I mean, this is a great pick. Fantastic. Um, she directed a second movie after this. I don't. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's got an equally great cast. I do until I don't. But oh, I didn't see I it. Think, no. Yeah, nothing. It doesn't sound like it. And I just wonder. At the moment, she's created and stars in a sitcom. 
called Bless This Mess. Yes, I was going to mention. Yeah, that is right. quite good. That is quite good. Oh, and is that's, it good? Okay. Yeah, that's based very much around her experiences of motherhood and also oh. um, to do with kind of uh, birth and deciding to stay at home to give birth and, and stuff like that. On that. Yeah, yeah, and and it's because very I was much. Hoping, I, I was hoping I'd be able to track a, an episode of it down and, and watch it, but I didn't have time. But I definitely will now because I really think, like, we're talking about John Houston. He he had a fantastic career because he's a man. <laughs> Edward Norton <laughs> had a fantastic career. Um, and you know, I think it's just, it's three times as hard for women, especially directors, to. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, like I say, I didn't see I do until I don't. It's probably not that not as it's not a career ending film. But, um, you know, bless this mess certainly sounds like it's something that I'd like to. See yeah. And it's de- it's it's very much. World, yeah. yeah, it's very much in collaboration with Dax Shepard. So they kind of take turns at directing right. as well. And, and it's yeah. very, very interesting. But, you know, she is, um, I suppose, like a lot of. Uh, I suppose Hollywood heavy hitters in terms of the female uh, heavy hitters in Hollywood at the moment is a board member for women in film. Um, you know, she's very passionate about, you know, women being people who are decision makers and, you know, women who are writing and directing and getting projects out there. Yeah. And look, you know, yeah, like whilst progress is being made, the, the struggle goes on. But what that's, that's the thing about this. I think, the, the message, the feminist message is there, but it's done so, so well. It's extremely funny and it's not rammed down your throat. And oh, if you haven't seen it, it's a brilliant, brilliant pick of, of a movie. It really is. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, really I saw it when it came out, I so really I'm definitely going to watch it again. Yeah. Totally. I really enjoyed the relationship with her sister as well. Because yeah. it wasn't your typical uh, sister relationship. And it kind of reminded me of the sister relationship in something like Fleabag as well. Um, which was great and Robert Cordroy as well for his part he's usually playing an obnoxious <laughs> yeah. character but in this one he's definitely playing the downtrodden on kind of victim like character and you actually feel bad for Rob Cordroy I don't think I've ever felt bad for Rob Cordroy <laughs> in a movie so. yeah <laughs> Yeah, and and they they are great. They are a great pairing, and uh, yeah, particularly as well. If you, if people haven't seen what happens in Vegas, that is my like. It doesn't matter what stage that movie is at on television. I am watching it. Like it's just brilliant. <laughs> I've never seen it. Oh my god, oh, it's so good. Movie. It's so good. Yeah. My concern when I was watching because I, I I did know Lake Bell is that kind of that girl actor mm. actress. Or I'd seen her in like What Happens in Vegas and those TV sh- and some TV shows as well. I, sometimes when you see someone who you know was a kind of a uh, that guy or that girl transitioning to be the main focus of a film yeah especially if they're you know she uh, she's used to playing a particular type of character i was thinking oh this is going to get old really quickly if it's this for 90 minutes or whatever but it, it's not that at all you know it's it's not just her kind of her kind of one-liners and stuff like that she has a lot more depth to the character which i didn't expect uh, yeah and yeah and i thought yeah it's definitely you, you, you've got all the goofiness that you normally kind of would associate with her the snarkiness the kind of the sarcasm but there's a lot more as you say going on with this character there's a lot of layers there's a lot of kind of fraught kind of father daughter stuff there's yeah, yeah there's a lot and there's just about her trying to just kind of make a way for herself and get out from under her sh- her, her her father's fucking massive shadow yes. and ego and and that's really kind of um what what a lot of it is dealing with as well but it is it's it's fantastic and it was just a real joy to watch it again and i really admire i have to say i, I really enjoy 
um, watching her on screen and and everything else. So I'm excited to see what she is going to do next in terms of her, her next work. Actually, you know, it was interesting that, uh, you know, in, in a world and it was actually great because there's some real the real history of movies in there you know finding out about uh don lafontaine and stuff like that so there's some great stuff in there but i remember hearing a great story about uh another voice actor um and he kind of is in a similar vein as don lafontaine and his name is red pepper and um he he did the voice for like uh Jurassic Park and stuff like that so he he very much has the same kind of gravelly tone actually i might just play a quick clip of him here on a distant island, nature holds an incredible secret. And now it's only a matter of time before this lost world is found. Some have come to observe its wonders. Others to hunt it down. A Steven Spielberg film. Don't move! The Lost World, rated PG-13. So that's uh, that's Red Peppers his name, um, and he's 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 actually uh, he's actually um, he's actually a British voice actor, although he doesn't sound very British there. Um, but he also did like other work, like the Blair Witch Project, Men in Black, Boogie Nights, and stuff like that. His vocal style is very similar to to Don and LaFontaine. But I just love the story about how he ended up being a voice uh, voiceover uh, artist. He was originally a tube driver or you know a train driver in the tube yeah. in, in london in the underground and he was doing this stop one day and he said you know next station's this or that and you know there'd be delay here or whatever and one of the people who was on the train was a producer and he heard oh, his hey. voice over the you know over the over the the tannoy and he couldn't believe how good he sounded so he ran up he got off the train ran up to the carriage handed his card into red pepper who was you know uh, who was in the in the in the in the driving uh, in the driving seat, and that and then he became the one of the biggest history. voice actors in the world. Could you imagine? Next stop, Piccadilly Station. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to get off. I want to stay. I want to stay I'm... for the ride. Yes, with this guy. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah. No, fantastic. And you know, I I I always I think I think I would love to be in a world where you know mm. it's a great uh, it's a great um claim to fame you know being like Isn't the voice it, yeah. of god um okay so Niall it's time to stick him up punk you're in the firing line aren't you <laughs> yeah stick him up what do you want what stick him what? up from my wallet what on your clothes your boots and oh, your no. motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> Niall it's your turn for 1001 movies what the fuck movie are you talking about because I don't know what it is that's good. That's good. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> one thousand and one films to see before we kill you. So, thousand and one films to see before we kill you, and it's my turn. And today I'm going to talk about a film that came out in 1984, but it was Oscar nominated in 1985, and it is Places of the Heart. Have either of you seen Places of the Heart? No. Because I tell no. you, I hadn't seen Places of the Heart. Um, nope. And I, it, like, it's uh, much like when we, we visit the Oscar nominated movies of the year that we were born. This was a movie that's like, why is nobody talking about Places of the Heart, the Heart anymore? Like, this, nominated for Best Picture, didn't win. Uh, the main actress in it won for best actress uh, it was nominated for best supporting actress and best supporting actor they didn't win for that but 
I'm going to talk about the Best Supporting Actor nomination in this. So this is Places of the Art, the Heart, not Art, Places of the Heart from 1984, an American family drama film written and directed by Robert Benton, and it stars Sally Field, who won for Best Actress, Lindsay Krauss, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Ed Harris, Penny Glover, and a young actor making his first screen debut called John Gavin Malkovich. Oh, well, I thought his first so, movie was being John Malkovich. No. <laughs> No, that's the first movie we played himself. So um, we talked about the best uh, best movies who were not, or the best nominated, best picture nominations from 1984. But this was one of the nominations from 1985. And it was along with uh, a, a Passage to India and uh, Amadeus and films like this. It didn't win. I don't have who won that year. But as I say, it got a lot of nominations, but it has disappeared into obscurity, which is why I wanted to watch it when I found it was the first film performance of John. Um, we open in 1935 in a small rural town in Texas called Waxahachie. And uh, it starts with the sheriff called Royce. Royce Spaulding goes to investigate gunshots at the local railway station. And a young black teenager called Wiley he has a gun, uh, he's drunk, he thought the gun was empty, but it's not. It accidentally goes off and it kills the sheriff. So despite the fact that this film came out in 1984 and it was set in 1935, there's a lot of stuff that you can read into that would resonate with today. Mm. Um, Wiley, who uh, had the gun, he ends up getting lynched by locals and uh, they tie him to a truck and they drag him through the town until he dies and they hang his body from a tree. Uh, but that is really just the inciting uh, circumstance of this film. The film really is about the uh, sheriff, Royce's uh, widow called Edna, who's played by Sally Field. And she's dealing with her husband's death. She has this farm. Um, she has two children. Her sister Margaret kind of helps her organise the funeral. Uh, the bank has a mortgage on the farm. The bank says um, you've got to you've got to sell the farm and you've got to give your kids up and put them somewhere else to board in order to uh, to you know to survive because you can't make the loan payments. But uh, Edna, played by Sally Field, as I say, uh, she decides that she's not going to do that. She's going to run this farm. She's going to keep her kids. She's going to take in some boarders. Uh, the banker who was kind of a he's a sympathetic character he's kind of like look if you don't take if you don't get some money coming in you're not going to be able to hold on to the farm he says why don't you take on my brother-in-law Mr. Will who is a blind veteran from World War One, and he is played by John Gavin Malkovich so Mr. Will moves in Mr. Will doesn't really want to move in he literally kind of goes I don't want to be here you don't want me here I'll just try and keep out of your way it's fine Um. And also she takes in uh, a drifter uh, called Mose, played by Danny Glover. And he is a bit of a shady character. He's also possibly a thief. Uh, but he does know his way around uh, cotton field, as you would expect at this time in America. Uh, so he decides that he's going to help her turn this farm around and make a profit from their the farm in order that she can hold on to it and keep everybody together as a family so we have uh, Edna who's struggling to survive with the two small kids 
the farm very little money the bank wants to uh, take that farm away uh, we have a, a deadly tornado that comes in and wants to blow the farm away we have uh, some gentlemen in sheets called the Ku Klux Klan who want to come in and burn the farm away because she's taken in uh, this guy called Mose and they don't like the colour of her skin um, as well as that we also have as I say her sister Margaret played by Lindsay Krauss and Margaret's husband Wayne played by Ed Harris and it turns out that their marriage is not as idyllic as you would think and he might be having an affair with the school teacher or has had an affair with the school teacher um, but what I was most interested in and when this film is most effective is when it focuses on Edna and her two boarders played by John Malkovich and Danny Glover and her two kids as they try to keep this this farm as a going concern and that is the the central part of of this film when it when it kind of goes into the more i would say soapy aspects of her sister-in-law or sorry her sister and brother-in-law and whether or not or his is affair and all that it just it's an extra layer that you're not interested in mm. um i was amazed at how fully formed if you like john malkovich was in this movie for i mean he had a huge amount of stage uh experience before this like you know it, so we i mean we could talk about edward norton and he really did seem to come from nowhere john malkovich mm. had worked with the steppenwolf theater company in chicago and you can imagine that he he uh, he was cast and everything going he worked with sam shepherd i think on a lot the premiere of a lot of his plays but when you watch this as the first screen performance of him you're gonna go i can see the echo of every other performance he's going to give all the way down what I really liked in this and uh, in a performance he gave I think a couple of years after uh, in a, a film version of um, uh, not the Grapes of Wrath the other one the of John Steinbeck one of Mice and Men mm. yes where he plays um, not George but um, Lenny 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 yeah uh, which is a real he's playing really against type in that and he is a little bit in this as well he's playing a he's not usually he's playing a very urbane a very intelligent a very in control character and because what we have here is a line for world war one who's in a house that he doesn't want to be with dealing with people he doesn't want to be with he's kind of again he's not playing that if you like but you still see those echoes of of him and what i think makes him most compelling as an actor um it's probably a three star movie for me I'm glad I I don't know why it's not on TV every Sunday afternoon because I mm. think people would love it's it's got a real kind of I don't want to say soap in a derogatory way but it's a real kind of settle in now it comes on at three o'clock and we'll watch it and then we'll have our tea then when it's finished kind of a film but he's really good in it and of course we saw the great uh, performances he would go on to give after it Okay, so it is time to murder a scene. And as is uh, the usual with this, um, we're really going to murder a scene, I'd say. <laughs> iconic, iconic cinema. It's time to murder a scene. So it's time to murder a scene. And in true real take fashion, we're going to absolutely massacre uh, pretty much the, the movie the definitive movie of all time the number one on every list ever it is of course citizen kane and vertigo uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, Niall, before you give a synopsis, he, actually, no, give your synopsis first and then we'll have the scene. Okay, so they, of course, we couldn't talk about debuts without talking about Citizen Kane, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier on. Uh, and it is from 1941, same year as The Maltese Falcon, and it is the uh, film produced, directed, starring Orson Welles, who co wrote the screenplay with Herman Mankiewicz you you can look at Mank on uh, Netflix as well the recently Oscar nominated movie to kind of decide him, him who who wrote what or whatever uh, this is his first feature film he had of course been on stage before this he is one of these people a little bit like John Huston Orson Welles who seems to have been born and then it's like off I go to make my way in the world and be in plays in London and Ireland and like apparently he worked with Michael McLeamore in, in The Gate here but I think a lot of what Orson Welles tells you about his life is crap <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's just made up to be honest with you but uh, you know there's books written about it but it is undoubtedly one of the uh, it's Consistently been on the the top uh, number one spot in the best movies of all uh, of all time. As we were alluding to, there uh, Vertigo was kind of edging it out. It's out of this or Vertigo, but um, yeah, it is Citizen Kane, and uh, we have a scene here where we have a young upstart Charles Foster Kane and his uh, his uh, editor come in. I think, and they're just having a, a discussion about how what's the right way to to run a, a newspaper. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure. To see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged, maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would money be too and property. Bad. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me... Honestly, my boy, don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. And action. And if you think this is a great opportunity to hear Niall doing Citizen Kane. Will you be wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I don't do Citizen Kane. You don't do it. Don't. You don't do it. You don't do it. Ross, give it, give it an old college try. You can do it. Come on. Go, go on. Get, get, talk to your, talk to your inner, inner Orson. Your, your inner Orson. Mr. Thatcher, isn't everything I've been saying in the Inquirer? No, let me try that again. <laughs> The trouble is, Mr. Thatcher, you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who has 82,631 shares of Metropolitan Transfer, you see, I do have a rough idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Char 
<laughs> Charles Foster Kane is a dangerous scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town and a committee should be formed to boycott him. But you may, if you can, form such a committee. Put me down for a contribution of $1,000. Charles, my time okay, is too valuable for me. I'm going to, I'm sorry. Can, can I stop it? Oh, Jesus. Uh, Listen, on, if you're not going to no, be no, yours no. now, come on now. No, 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 it's fine. No, no, no. We're, we're, I know we're running long, but this movie, this this episode is about, you know, directors, <laughs> writers and actors. So I just want to take Ross back to that, that line that starts as Charles Foster Kane. You're doing a great job, Ross. You're doing fantastic, okay? I know, but I'm excited. What I'm saying, just lean into it a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? Just enjoy it. Just lean back in your chair and smile at smile at Sinead and say you know tell tell her who you are you know and you know and what you're all about and that you're a dangerous scoundrel just be like that talk to talk to her like that and action <laughs> what the fuck kind of direction okay okay I feel okay, like I we, we've you. lost we've lost a little focus we've lost a little focus alright okay so Keep that note that I've said. Now, Sinead, you're doing you're doing fantastic. You're imperious. You're now you're giving me a little bit like kind of screwball comedy. That's good. Really? That energy is good. Yeah. But, cut that. Cut that out. Okay. I'm yeah. trying this accent. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know it's fine. That's fine. Yeah, you're bam, 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 bam. That's good. Yeah. But you know, so if she's bam, 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 Ross, you've got oh, to be come, like. Come, come. I'm Charles. I'm Charles Foster King. You know, you got to lean yeah. into it. Just lean Be back lazy. and go, yeah. lazy. Just enjoy it. Enjoy it. You're the guy with the power in the room, okay? You have all the power. And action. Charles Foster Kane is a dangerous scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town and a committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of one thousand dollars child my time is too valuable for me other hand i am the publisher of the inquirer as such it is my duty i'll let you in on a little secret it is also my pleasure to see okay that's good that's good okay let's just go back Uh, okay Okay. i really like what you're doing Mm -hmm. um i like i'm the publisher of the inquirer and as such and what i want is when you say i'll let you in on a little secret i want to hear it's like I let you. I want you to kind of get. It's like, come on, let me let me tell you a little secret. Okay, it's my pleasure as well. I like it. Okay, <laughs> all right, and action. I am the publisher of the Enquirer, and as such, it is my Good. duty. I'll let you in on a little dirty secret. No, that's gone too creepy. Oh <laughs> Jesus, Thatcher's gone. He's no, gone. No, He's left good. the building. I like it. I like it. I like it. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. He's and a filthy little secret. <laughs> Yeah. Ro- Rosebud is the snow globe. It's a sle- yeah. it's a sleigh. No, no spoilers. No spoilers. Sure come on. Oh, sure come on. Sinead, we're getting somewhere. Can you? Okay, on. sorry. Okay, Ross, you're you're doing fantastic. And action. I'll let you in on a disgusting, sweaty secret. <laughs> <laughs> it's also my pleasure to see it that decent, hard-working men of this city. Sorry. Decent, hardworking people of this city are not robbed blind by a group of money-mad pirates because God helped me. Nope. Because God helped them. They've no one to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little sexy, dirty, filthy (laughs) secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it. You see, I have money and property. 
if I don't defend the interests of the underprivileged, somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or any property. And that would be too bad. Do you know how to tap, Mr. Dance? <laughs> Do you know how to tap, Mr. Thatcher? You ought to learn. <laughs> I happen to see your consulate. <laughs> okay, it's good. Consolidated <laughs> is the word. I know. Let's try for that. I happen to see your consolidated statement yesterday, Charles. Could I not suggest to you that it is unwise for you to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer, this is costing you one million, one million dollars a year. You're right. We did lose a million dollars last year. We expect to lose a million next year, too. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million a year, we'll have to close this place in hmm, 60 years. Scene. Printed. And scene. I'm here, I'm the director here. I'll call I, scene. I think I understand why um, we had the Niall famous as an actor no, no, more so but, because he's a bit of a dick as a director. I'm going to be honest with you. No, 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 no. The famous story about Orson Welles was on the first day he would come in and fire one person. Mm -hmm. So he would look around and go, I feel, "You, I, you fired." And and now I know what he should have done is fired two people. Specifically <laughs> you and, and so, can it just be put on record though? That you, you I can do it myself. I can do it myself. This is the first. This is the obviously the first day he went. I got I got Ross Leahy in to play Citizen Kane, and Absolutely. he's not working out. I'll Great do it cast. myself. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let uh, just no, be put no, on the record fantastic. that uh, you know you shied away from Orson. You know, I'm a bit surprised by that. I thought I, I was no, expecting. I am no Orson Welles. I am no. I am no Orson Welles. <laughs> I mean, this is the other thing about great debuts, and I mm. think it applies probably to every person we talked about. Yeah, is that you know you're talking about John Huston, 37 maybe when he made the Maltese Falcon and had achieved so much in his life before that been nominated for best screenplay to, to uh, twice before that um, Edward Norton what was he 12 when he was in yeah. I love 12 he was, he was 20, 27 you know, I think yeah yeah Lake Bell as well much younger than probably all of us so uh, yeah. you know these guys great great debuts and um, well we won't we won't see more from John but I'm sure we'll see more from uh, uh, Edward and Lake. We will. Um, I think it has to be probably said that uh, this will go down as uh, in history as the best goddamn debut to a season yet. I mean, where else would you hear Citizen Kane being absolutely <laughs> brutally murdered like that? Mm -hmm. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Till next time, film fans. Bye. See you at the movies when the movies are open again. Uh, got Connery there. <laughs> Hi. Sit down and grab a glass. Sinead Ross and Niall have made a podcast. It's the real take, breaking it down. Having fun and talking movies. Da -da 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 -da. Talking movies. You have been listening to The Real Take, presented by Sinead Brassel, Ross Leahy, and Niall O'Brien. Our music was provided by actor, artist, and musician Will Guppy. You can find him on Instagram at will.guppy. And you can find us on Twitter 
Instagram, and Facebook at The Real Take Podcast. If you would like to contact us to tell us how fantastic we are, you can reach us at TheRealTakePodcast at gmail.com. See you at the movies.